That's why also this topic's tough right during in this like we have to acknowledge a little bit too this topic is also tough in our current uh, political and social setting in the u.s like we're all the the four of us well i'll speak for myself i'm a you know some dude who's uh employed through um and financial services in denver for pete's sake and uh you know i get to sit around and have the conversation, drink the, drink the craft beer and following the money in U S in the U S in U S politics and in, and in U S uh, like formal Christian church is mm-hmm. difficult. The most, the most influential churches are the ones with the most money. Absolutely. We're having a wah wah feeling right now. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all super white. Um. Uh, so, when, yeah, when, when, I mean, in some ways, like if you're born into it, it's, it's really hard to get out of it. You know, I mean, sure. you've, you've got people who work in these institutions that were created years before they were, you know, they were even like thought of as a human being. So, is, is it, what do, you, what do you do? You have the influence, you have the power, and you are these religious people. Um, then it's okay, well, what do you do with that then? Because I don't want to. I don't want to be the guy that says anarchy down with the system. I know friends who would totally yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, you know, it is what it is. Um, people get paid. Um, they're they're in these religious settings, and they yeah. have they have lobbying influences, if sure. you will, with massive amounts of people who have crazy power in the Western world. All they got to do is get a microphone. Whereas this podcast, <laughs> we probably don't have the same weight. <laughs> There are rewards and penalties for participating in the system, if you, especially if you're privileged in the system. So, like that part of the challenge is, is that there are rewards for being born into the system, benefiting from the system, and and not speaking against or uh, embodying anything against the system, right? Like even, even people, there's people listening right now who are like, I want to have this conversation with my family about how my faith has changed. And I'd love to say that I'm the Christian who facilitates interfaith dialogue, but like, I am fearful of, I'm fearful of the people I love rejecting me or, or, you know, whatever, like, and these are like complex issues. So I don't want to downplay that, but I mean, like there's benefits to, there are rewards um, for staying in the system, and so yeah, like I don't know how do you build empathy or like how do you how do you help people see beyond themselves? That's t- that's tough. Or why should I care to see beyond myself? Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah. people who are less privileged are forced to see beyond themselves because they confront it every day. Sorry. Now I feel like I'm on my soapbox. So I'm going to no, back it's, up. I, no, I think it's, it's, it's nice to have comfort and to feel safe and secure. These are all things that were embedded within us unconsciously before we even knew how to talk about them. And now that we're becoming more aware of them, it's a little frightening. Like to, how do you buck the system that creates the set, the safe environment? Well, let's talk about that for a minute, (laughs) because that actually brings up something that's been in the back of my mind this whole conversation. Um, I I know that there's a name for this. I I don't know what the name is, but there's like a hierarchy of like uh, of the ego. Oh, I don't. It's like a hierarchy of the ego, basically. That's like, you know, first you have to the the first thing your ego is worried about is like, do I have food and shelter? 
Okay. Yeah. And, and it, it builds up from there. Right. So like, um, <laughs> if you're making, Oh, okay. Perfect. Thank you, Janelle. Um, so it starts with psychological needs, foods, water, warmth, rest. And then the second level is safety needs, which are security and safety. Uh, and then the third level is belongingness and love needs. So intimate relationships and friends, uh, and then esteem needs, uh, prestige and feeling accomplished. And then finally at the very top is self-actualizations, achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. So like if, if you are, you know, um, a multi-billionaire, um, you know, who has lots and lots of influence. Um, you're and doesn't pay taxes and doesn't pay taxes. And you know, maybe you're in the Senate, maybe you're not. Um, you're at the top of that pyramid and, uh, your job is to influence the people down at the bottom of that pyramid. And, uh, sometimes their socioeconomic structure, uh, and their food and their safety and their shelter depends on how well they fit into the system that you have built. Um, so I think that's pretty important in the context of our conversation today uh, because that's how easy it is to uh, have a, a political agenda based on your religion, um, you know, if you have the money and power to do it. You know, the, the last, the peak, this self-actualization, your, your hopes and your dreams and all those kinds of things. That's a very, that's a very privileged question. I remember as a, as a naive, this was 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we were living in the Caribbean. I probably shared this before at some point on the podcast. And I asked a group of middle school and high schoolers. I had, you know, I had the influence. I gathered them there. And, I'll, and I was like, guys, like, what are your hopes and dreams? And I got deer in the headlights. They're like, they, no one had ever asked them that question. And now that they were hearing it, it was irrelevant to their context. And uh, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, we come from totally different worlds. So this, this hierarchy thing, like it, it completely makes sense. Cause if you don't have, you don't have that foundational, Hey, you don't have food. And so, and so it, what was it? One of yeah. our dumb senators or somebody was like, if kids don't get their reading scores up, we're going to take away their lunches. Yeah, that, That's smart. Really? Yeah. But so, and it goes even <sighs> like, so you have food, but then what, what, what's, what's the level after food and shelter? And, and then what is it after that? Uh, security and safety. So there it is right there. Let's say you are in a second, third world country and you do have these things, but there is no, there's no safety and there's no one looking after you except for you. So then what do you do? Easy money. I w and this, this is in our own country. Okay? Uh, kids in the inner city of all, of all races. If you're in the inner city and let's say you get, you get fed, you can find food anywhere in any, any city, but you don't have safety. Nobody's got your back. You're looking after you. I mean, that, this is killing me. This this stuff should be um, this this is religious. It should be religious. So that would offend a lot of religious people, though, because it's pure psychology. It, yeah, and yeah. when you bring because it up, science I mean, at is least, not good for religion. Apparently, but can't can't religious people and secular people, and I'm using these terms in the ways in which we get in the way of God's will with that shit. But so I mean, I, I don't know if we're on the same page here. I'm just I I I would wonder is there a way to find common ground just with these basic. Can we can we start there with uh, a religious non-religious agenda that can become political? That'd be great, but like what the the economy guy in the government was like. Well, I don't know why if you're furloughed, you would need to, you know, get another job. What's wrong with you? Like, can't you just go down to the bank and get a loan? 
like complete and total ignorance that most families in this country have less than $500 in savings. They don't have money to go without pay for a month. And he's completely ignorant. I mean, really? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because that's where, that's the, that's part of the problem is we can't, is it goes back to the empathy piece. Cause I mean, I, I, I hear you. And, and this is, I feel like why I fell in love with like public education. I was like, this is the way like public education is the way that, that we help people, um, practice empathy, develop empathy. And I still believe in that. But I also saw until you take away the kids' lunches because their reading scores aren't high. Right, enough. right, yeah, totally. But I also saw um, religion in learning, which was, I mean, that was, which I was a little naive. Like you want to talk about naive too? Like I was naive too, Ryan. Like I worked with college students, eighteen-year-old college students who were not at home. Like they weren't even li- at a primarily residential campus. And was talking to these kids about like learning, really learning, really discovering for themselves, learn to think for themselves. And you actually had a hard time breaking them from their, you know, religion actually came into play. Don't, don't, don't be, don't Mm -hmm. be, don't be coming at me with all this. um, I mean, my liberal learning in my tradition, (laughs) like, and I came from a family that was completely averse in like psychological talk. And so this was not strange to me, but the tradition I came from would look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and be like, hey, that's not spiritual. Like God provides like type of thing. Th- th- well, but that's, that's not spiritual. That shouldn't be forming your worldview or your understanding of the way the world works. You need to have a spiritual framework. Oh, interesting. But this is where you can talk to that worldview about belonging and love needs. And so, and I know that skips safety and security, but maybe they can bleed together because that is very spiritual and it's, it's a, but, but you're talking about that's a, a place of, of that's a place sure. of privilege though, when you can skip over food and shelter and safety. And I can maybe talk to you about relationships, but you deny the fact that I'm hungry. So, but if so, so my, my thing is like, if, if you get to a point where you can con- convince or, you know, dialogue with somebody that says belonging is important then I think that creates some compassion within them then to hopefully this is true. Sure. I could be naive. Then they would go back like, yeah, they should get fed. They should have an education. They should have the same rights and privileges and all the things because they belong to a community. This is where this, this makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Janelle, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. This makes me want to throw up in my mouth, but Ryan, I'm, you're speaking to me right now. And this comes straight out of like my, um, my education, like where you got to, you got to meet people where they're at and like in some ways you got to meet people where they're at. Like people, there, there are people who I know right now that I could call and have the belonging conversation with who wouldn't get the, the food conversation. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying when we, when we go back to this dialogue conversation, you got to meet people where they're at, where they can start the conversation and then be like, maybe this isn't pure evil. What else you got? Or but when your ministry is more concerned about getting kids to say a prayer about accepting Jesus in your heart and you send them home for the weekend after Friday night meeting sure. and don't give them food and you know, they're not going to have a meal until Monday. Yeah. 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 I don't disagree with you. And there are so many ministries that get hung up on this prayer, this 
this commitment to a God, this commitment to a spirituality, but you don't care what that child is dealing with. You don't call DFS because they're being beat. Sure. You don't feed them. Sure. Like, not okay. It's not okay. And, sure. and and when we're passing off this as, well, this is just like where people are and we just need to meet them there. No, you know, like need to bring them into the house and make them look at it and see what's going on until their hearts are broken so that maybe we can start to change this country in a real way. Sorry, I broke the rules. <laughs> I'm out. Okay. You're not out. You're, you're uh, totally <laughs> in. I, I mean, well, I, I don't, I do not disagree with you. I just don't know how I'm going to get somebody to come to the house and look at it and have their heart be broken without meeting them somewhere. I don't think you're wrong. I hope you, I hope, I guess what I would say is I hope you don't take my comment as uh, being dismissive no, not of at the all. ills that you're pointing. Maybe at. we shouldn't be um, putting conditions around, um, you know, how we, if you follow this, this Maslow uh, hierarchy here, we shouldn't be putting conditions on the food that the kids get. We shouldn't be putting condition on the love that the kids get, or, you know, not just the kids, but, but everybody. Right. And, and you, you could come at this and I know that there are some people who don't really get the whole food need conversation. Like that is still, that's foreign to a lot of people. That's, that's foreign to probably, I would say a majority of people It wasn't foreign to Jesus. No, it wasn't. Absolutely. wasn't. And, and it, it, there's, there are so many, it's so important to, to realize that there are people that it, it does matter to these days, but let's say you're one of those people who can't relate to that. You know, I don't think that as a kid, I was ever starving for food. Um, I was pretty poor, but I wasn't, uh, starving for food at any point. Um, but what I did feel was, you know, when I wanted that sense of community, especially as an outcast growing up, like, where do you get a sense of community in your small Southern Baptist town? Well, at the big Southern Baptist mega church down the road, of course. Um, and, uh, I mean, how do, how do you do? My grandmother was religious, but she never went to church. Uh, my mom was an atheist. Like, how did I come to religion? at all. How did I go into a religion that I now kind of really am glad I'm out of? Um, because I felt like it was a place where people were going to accept me. Right. And, uh, that's, that's, that's powerful. That's really big, but there were conditions on that, right? You got to do these things. You got to kneel. You got to say that prayer. You got to be out there evangelizing, go to your evangelism explosion class, um, get, get your prayer buddy and your, uh, um, what accountability partner and, and tell your friends you've been praying for them and where you're, we, we actually wore pins to school one day. How can I pray for you? It was like a whole thing. Like literally my church was this humongous Southern Baptist church that like was probably a good third of the school went to that church. So like we flooded the place, right? All and the kids yeah, were wearing my, the same button. Yeah, yeah. my yeah. husband got beat up wearing that button. So um, anyway, so stop. Uh, you know, that that's how you influence people. That's how you push your agenda is by uh, saying you need something. I got it. Here's what you got to do to get it. And that's what that's what we're doing. Um, that's what a lot of, of religious um, institutions are doing. And uh, I think it's really messed up.
So what are some religious agendas today that are having an impact? And let's not just focus on the negative because that, that's easy. We can do that. Well, it's going to come up anyway. Uh, but negative, positive, just any agendas that are going to influence society down the road. You know, the there ha, there's some interesting um, things happening. And I, this is complicated. This is where I need like a... I need like a um, somebody way more informed on this, but people are people are leaving rural small town America in large numbers, and they're flocking to particularly like this is a generalization, but uh, I'm pretty sure we could find some data that shows us that the age ranges of like 20 to 40 right now, millennials, post millennials, are are yeah are moving toward uh, more populated urban or suburban areas. And uh, I think that's an interesting, potentially partially religious and theological movement. Like people don't want to, people are interested in experiencing more than just their little microcosm of the world. And I don't know if that's good for the U.S. or bad for the U.S. Or I certainly think exposure to more people is good. And we still have suburbs. Don't get me wrong. We're still organized into. So I don't want to dismiss all that. Um, you can still live in a more populated area, but only live around people who look like you or whatever the case. However, it does feel like people are going to places that have more culture. They're saying words like culture, um, more pluralistic, more pluralist areas like more more religion represented um, because people are interested in in experiencing that or at least being close to it, which I find to be, and maybe full disclosure, maybe part of this is because it's kind of has something to do with my path. Now I live in Colorado. We're super white, but I live in Denver, Colorado. And part of the reason I live here is for a reason um, to see culture and, and hopefully experience interface communities and things like that. So um, it seems there's a movement toward more populated areas uh, by by kind of our millennials, post-millennials. And um, I think that's an interesting phenomenon. So do you think like, due to that, that, well, it's probably not just an observation on your part. It's, I mean, it's, it's a fact. There's studies out there that have shown this. It does create that more pluralistic interfaith balance within the cities that have, they have the influence. Now, of course, you can't dismiss the rural communities. That's what happened in the last election, by the way. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, I, it does, it change, that changes the religious landscape, then which changes the political, um, cultural ideology, if you will. Yeah. So in, in what ways would an interfaith, pluralistic city dynamic, in a religious sense, shape politics? That's what I'm curious to know. Look at the last swearing in in Washington, at least on one side of the aisle, with the uh, different people of color elected into office, with people who brought their families to the swearing in, um, with people who were elected, and this is where some other people who are more informed are going to have to help me out, but we had some firsts related, uh, elected related to religious ideology and background, right? And some firsts related to like racial background. Am I making this up in this last election? And so, I mean, 
we're also we're all we're seeing some of that which is kind of cool and exciting um i remember seeing a pretty interesting picture of this wearing in and um and it was like this is great there are people more people of color being elected um just a more representative or uh, a more visually uh diverse representation of of americans do you think when you have different religions together in a major city like Denver, New York City, Chicago, L.A., whatever, I mean, we can go across every state, that you're going to see more of a democratic socialist agenda based on the interfaith connections? Yes, um, on its face, because that, that way of seeing the world is seeing a world where we are bringing everyone onto a fair playing field. We're taking away... Um, unearned privilege and we're letting everyone have a chance to have a good life. And I think that when people shout about democratic socialism as the same thing as communism, you're just not paying attention. Um, get your details straight, go do some Googling like from real sources and see what the differences are and see that what we're trying to do is set up a foundation in our country that prepares us for the future where people are educated and they're fed and they feel safe and they can go do all the things that make that actually make this country great like being able to to have the space to be creative creative people people that write our code that build our cars that um you know create new music and art they can't do those things if they don't have shelter and they don't have food and they have $150,000 of debt like creativity doesn't happen when when life is going insane. And that is, that's just one aspect where, you know, when we are, are providing the base, a solid base for our country, we are guaranteeing that we can be at the front of the race. Um, when we are starving our people, we're going to fall behind. It's interesting too. I was just going to, sorry, I feel like I jumped ahead of you there, Ryan. I feel like uh, you're, you're, you also, when we have those interfaith communities and we have those communities you're in proximity to the going back to I'm going to forget the woman's name who talked about living in proximity to the poor here in Michelle Warren. Thank you. Of Michelle CCDA. Warren. Yeah. Um, you, you become friends with the Muslim next door. You become friends with, I mean, these are the people who you drop your kids off at school with. I mean, again, I know there'll be super cynics listening and they're not necessarily wrong saying like schools are segregated, even in cities, Sure, we could have that argument, but let's set that aside for a minute. You, your neighborhood is at the park. You're with other people, and you create real relationships. And then it, it doesn't become a conversation about um, like you shift to the language from racial equality to like that's my neighbor. Right. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's less. It's well, more real. It's, that that commandment from a Christian. Uh, from from that specific Jesus creedal stance actually is embodied going back to embodied theology. So interestingly, like your your theology, your religion, your experienced embodied faith changes because of the proximity. Thus, your politics changes, and it, and otherwise you're just in a bubble. And if you're in a bubble, then you're just going to stay the same old whatever fill in the blank that may be. And that creativity, I think, is so critical. Like when we were talking about like, how do you, what do you do with your privilege? Right? Like that's something I at least, I would like to think I try to spend some time thinking about 
as a, like a dude who's able-bodied in American society today. And like one of the things I try and do, well, one of the things I love to do is support this community, brew theology. One of the things I try and do is support local art. Like I love going to local art shows and I think it opens my mind and like, uh, and I love going to, um, I've gone to like the Santa Fe art walk in the summer a few different times just by myself. Like Allison likes to go with me, but sometimes she's like, I'm not going to deal with all those people and I'll go up there by myself and go to the food trucks and stuff. The point I'm trying to make is that like going and engaging in those community in, in those communities that maybe we see as a little bit more uh, on the fringe or less um, privileged or whatever the case um, try and go to a cultural events in Denver, put yourself in a place where it does become your neighbor. And it's not just about like, so read your sacred text in new environments while engaging people. Imagine people doing that. And you can do it on your phone. Yes, you can. Digital Bibles, hashtag Dr. Mark George. <laughs> that was episodes a while back, by the way. Um, um, I do have one organization yep. I'd love to shout out is the Poor People's Campaign. And this is a direct response to the movement that was created by Martin Luther King Jr. and has been resurrected recently by Samuel Barber as kind of the, the head uh, pastor behind it. But Holly and Steve Roach Knight, Hope I got that in the right order, guys, um, are helping lead that campaign nationally. And then a friend of mine who works um, on that campaign in Kansas City said something really beautiful about it today that just is exactly what we're talking about. Um, She said today, it's so good to be part of a family who recognize that the moral narrative around poor folks and other dispossessed people need to change because everybody's got a right to live. And bringing others around us in that campaign and, and coming together and um, whether that's protesting or going down to the Capitol or talking to your senators, whatever, whatever those actions are, those actions are, are done to try to change the way that we're functioning in society. And so I think that's if you're looking for somewhere to join into people that are like-minded and working on these issues, search for the Poor People's Campaign in your area and see what they're doing. That's good. So many political agendas. Where I don't, I'm like a part of me is like I'm, I'm like nervous to go to any of them that are happening right now that could have lasting, you know, a lasting well, impact on, on I, our I think future can, generations. But I think we can talk about LGBTQ. Sure. Okay. So states states differ on this, obviously, just like abortion, and uh, so the Supreme Court. Okay, what happens there as far as future generations go? Let's talk about both parties, progressive liberals, d- Democrats, right? Conservative Republicans, fundies, fundies, all, it, everybody else in between. That might have been the biggest part of the last election cycle and the one coming up in a year and a half. Well, and it's a perfect example of the crossover of church and state because marriage does not need to be a political thing. Marriage belongs inside the church. And so... Amen. So, you know, we're, we've, turned, we've made this such a political issue, and it's being used that way, and it's, it, it, it's a made-up fight in that way, okay? Not saying at all, I'm totally in favor of us recognizing everybody's marriage, sure. period. Um, but the way that the church has turned this into a religious argument, um, fine. Like, go over there and do 
your thing, but as a political body, this this isn't your fight. Right. I've always thought that if it'd just be easier for everybody, conservatives and liberals, if we just said, let any religious institution do whatever they want with marriage, that's fine. Cause you're going to find that place and let, and then, but as far as the state goes, if, if a couple's a couple, they're a couple, they're a couple who cares. It's the government let, you know, so here's why I'm going to disagree with you both okay. on that point. Um, when, uh, gay marriage was legalized throughout the country, was the day that I packed up my car and left Alabama. It's a little bit bittersweet because now I'm leaving the state on, you know, on, on such a happy day. I didn't know it was going to happen. It's just dumb luck, right? Um, and the state strongly considered just getting out of the marriage game altogether. Let the, let the religious institutions deal with it. And of course, you know, their reasoning on it was, well, at least we're not you know, tainting God by allowing this, blah, 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 whatever, right? The problem with that, as, as simple as a solution as it may sound, the problem with that is that at some point, somebody who is part of a married couple is going to die, and what rights does the other person have guaranteed? Gay or straight, it doesn't matter at that point. If the state's not involved... Then, um, then how are rights? Oh no, defined? no! I think you heard me heard me wrong specifically. So I think that whatever the state decides to do, tax purposes and all that, let that be universal. Yeah, for everybody. For everyone, and I think as a church, if it's spiritual, let your religious institution because it's Muslims and Jews and Christians and whatever they're all going to do their own thing in their own institution anyway. Your your vows are going to look different. Your ceremony is going to look different. But let that sacred moment be separate. The Catholics are going to protect every church from being forced to do anything because Catholics. Yeah. Because then Catholics, they might be held accountable oh for some my, things. Yeah. Jesus. What an awful day for me to claim Catholicism on this podcast. Um, but Catholics, man, I, I, I have, I've had to remind friends. I'm like, look, man, my brother and sister-in-law almost didn't get married in the church because the Bishop wasn't coming through with the annulment. And my mom was like, so you're not going to get married until that annulment's official, right? And my brother was like, hell no, we're getting married. His, his now wife, who he, uh, uh, he's helped raise two beautiful girls who are like in college now. And um, they were like five and seven at the time they got married. His now wife had been married previously. And he was like, I just told mom that we wouldn't be married in the church if the annulment was never formalized. Like the Catholic church has, and then the Catholic church doesn't recognize yet. Yeah, doesn't recognize, uh, they won't marry anybody who hasn't had an annulment, et cetera. I mean, hell parishes won't marry you if there's not a member of the parish involved, some parishes, sorry, not every single Catholic church, but there's a lot of them out there, a huge percentage who are like, there's not a member at this church. We're not marrying you. Like the Catholic church is going to protect church's rights. Cause that's, I've heard that argument. Well, the government's going to force my church to me. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're definitely not going to do that. And then I remind them of the Catholic church and their relationship with the institution of marriage. And I'm like, the Catholics have been telling everybody no for a long time. And uh, I'm like, the Catholic church will protect that for everybody. They'll just, they'll just make sure that, State doesn't get involved with that. 
which is, I mean, was really one of my like moments with the Catholic church that I was like, what the hell is wrong with this place? All right. So how do we, how do we protect ourselves? Uh, how do we protect ourselves from falling victim to any kind of religious agenda pushed by powerful people and groups? What is the, how do you resist Janelle? What, how do you do it? Rob and Dylan would go skiing on Sunday. <laughs> you know, I like to go skiing on Sunday, but yeah. um, I also like to And Rob, Rob was just like vehemently pointing to the brew theology logo here. It is beautiful. Um, it is. It is beautiful. But no, I, I mean, he made the argument for me. He just didn't use his words like a good little Catholic boy does. <laughs> a little podcaster. Um, so, but no, um, I mean, I think that coming to a group like this is actually pretty huge for that. Like, get out, talk to people who are not like you, educate yourself. When it comes to an issue, research the issue. We live in a golden age of amazing information. Um, and, and so, like, protecting ourselves against that is really, I don't think it's that hard to do. It's just our human nature to sit in our echo chambers and we've got to break away from that. You have to be conscious of your echo chamber. We know we all have one. Okay. And social media amplifies it. It totally does. It totally does. And that's, that's important to remember that, you know, if you get on social media, that's why I I don't post a lot of political stuff on social. You'd think that I would, because I have really strong opinions, but I avoid posting stuff like that because I'm so afraid that social media is going to label me as one side or the other and only show me that. Um, and so I'll actually go into my Facebook, like that, you know, they they have like a back end profile on you and you can actually see what it says about you. And it will say like what it thinks your political leanings are. Um, and it still says that I'm moderate. So I, uh, I'm not a moderate, but, uh, we'll let Facebook think that so that I don't sit in an echo chamber. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have to, I have to echo, I have to echo the uh, Dylan and saying like, go meet other people who are not like you. And I, I don't think that your current relationships with people like you have to suffer in order to introduce more people into your circle and more people into your social life. So I think it's possible to, uh, to go out, but I do think it takes an effort, Dylan, to your point, like it's not easy. It takes an effort to go out and do that. And the other thing too, is, uh, um, I try and live by, uh, you know, a, a mentor one time told me be unfinished and I try and live by that. Like the minute you think you're done and you've got it all figured out is sort of the, the, uh, that's the scariest moment. Um, because then I think you might just be an asshole. Um, so, uh, I try and live by the stay unfinished rule. Um, and I'm not perfect at it all the time, but I try and strive for it. So. I think that's a good guideline. I think that helps us stay open and aware of what's going on around us for sure. How about you, Ryan? How do I protect myself? Do you put on the full armor of God? <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, you know what? This that was said in jest, and we got some laughter going on. But let me just say, let me just say, to defend to defend that verse, 
I love that verse about resisting the devil's schemes, the accuser. So what is accusatory? What are things that are oppressive? So the whole armor bit, like it would have made sense in Paul's world. The helmet, right? And the breastplate and the whole thing. Just don't forget the pants of purity. Oh, man. Here's what I like about this. Okay, it can be cheesy and, you know, you've seen all kinds of maybe or heard sermons about it and kids' illustrations and whatnot. It's actually a fun kid illustration having the armor. Kids, yeah. kids dig it. So um, for for years, I, I was like racking my brain as like the good Christian should have. How do I put on the full armor? How do I resist? One piece and, at a time. And yeah, no, no, no. Here, here's 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 what I came down to. I'm not supposed to because the the armor is about the body and every person within the body of Christ. If it truly is a body, it's not my body. It's our body. It's it's collective. It's collaborative. So. Um, Rob may be way better at the shield of faith than me. What does that mean? What is a shield of faith? Okay, uh, Dylan, you may be way better at the helmet of salvation than me. Uh, Janelle, you got the sword of the spirit. I don't. I got the feet of readiness. Rob, you don't. I'm faster than you. Okay. So, no. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I don't know. I don't know. We played softball together. You were a pretty fast left fielder. But okay, here, here my thing with all that, like, it finally hit me. This is this was years ago, and I'm like, uh, as cheesy as a whole armor can get in illustrations, I think that we collectively can can protect ourselves in ways in which um, you can't do it alone. So to me, community is always important, whether it's your family, uh, your friends, people that you trust. Uh, you got to have loyalty around you. you um, and, and if that's a body of Christ, if that's an actual, an actual church, great. If it's people who act as if they are the body of Christ, even though they're not specifically professed Christians, that's fine too. Because, again, I like to cultivate interfaith community and dialogue. But um, whatever that looks like, um, that's, I, think that, I think that's important. Yeah. And that's going to sound cheesy for those who like or have you know, all kinds of flashbacks with, with the armor. But I'm not good at certain parts of the armor. And I know that about myself. I know where I'm weak. And I ask friends for help. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bonus to this here. Not only how do we protect ourselves, but how do we protect others and our communities? And I'm going to say that the most important thing that you can do in whatever capacity you feel comfortable is to tell your story to somebody because you can talk statistics all day and people will dismiss that. You can, you know, tell, tell some, you know, vague stories. You can say something that you read or heard on the news and people will dismiss that like you've never seen, even if they, they smile and nod to your face. But if you sit there and emotionally tell them what you went through as a person in the situation that you were in, they're going to go, Oh shit. I didn't, I thought that was all just made up. I thought that so-and-so news.com has just been fake news in me about that for so long. I've never met anybody who actually went through that. Well, chances are they have met somebody who went through that but didn't tell their story. So tell your story. Listen to people's stories. Yes. Listen, speak. Imagine that. Having a little bit of a little little humble patience about you. Slow it down. Take a breath. It's not... Okay, maybe, maybe personal. May feel personal. But okay. How do you transcend that? Transcend and include. There's a little Richard Rohr for you. Transcend and include. That's easier said than done. Great Franciscan. Yeah, he's a good Catholic. 
Okay. Um, well, you know, that was, uh, that was the end of our two-part podcast. Out of context, religious agendas in a political scenario situation. So uh, if, you have, if you have any stories, by the way, about how your particular community is either being influenced in a way that you feel is oppressive or in a positive way, influencing others um, in a political way, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear it. Like, I, wanna, I, I think these kind of stories are fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to um, it's hard to have this conversation and not acknowledge the role that Christianity's played in the liberation of people of color in this country, and we're all white at the table, and so you know, I'm I also take maybe just a second to acknowledge that we we don't have a voice of like the African American community, African American Christian community at the table which I think is interesting. So if, Hey, if you're part of that community and you're interested in, um, discussing a part of religion politics that didn't come up tonight, send an email, uh, because, um, that's a, that's a huge piece that we didn't specifically dive into, but is a, a huge piece of American history, huge piece of religion and politics in this country. So just, uh, wanted to call that out. Thank you to Dylan for writing the content. And for all of our communities, we have them from the East Coast to, do we have them the West Coast yet? I, I don't think Not quite yet. yet. So, you know. There's some emails we got, we, we got a lot on the East Coast, so. so to All the way to, how about Denver? We're the furthest one West. And check us out. We're at brewtheology.org, at brewtheology on Facebook and Instagram, brew underscore on the Twitter. So please share this. Uh, on your personal handles, tag us, like us, uh, go to iTunes, rate us, review us. Five stars would be great. Even if you thought this episode was the worst episode ever, it's okay. You know, we love you anyway, because we're going to transcend and include as well. Uh, so if you have any questions, by the way, you can email Janelle at brutotheology.org or Ryan at brutotheology.org. And we hope to see you at a lot of festivals coming up, whether that is the New Story Festival in Austin Denver's Ale Truist or coming up in July, the Wild Goose Festival. All right. Peace, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.